0: It's good to see you all. It's great to have you here tonight as we come to celebrate communion, as we come to journey through this series called Freedom in Christ. Um, if you're out this morning, Karen, who is on our preaching team at the minute, was preaching from um, Acts chapter 9, 10? Paul, the conversion of Paul, chapter 9, I think it was. Um, and, and when she comes to preach in a sermon like that, it's fairly exegetical. It's working through verse by verse. What we're doing in the Freedom to Christ series are a series of topical sermons. So taking a topic and then jumping about different places in the Bible um, to see what God might be saying to a different style of preaching, different way of preaching. And we're drawing very heavily on the the material in the Freedom to Christ course. And I, I hope you're feeling blessed and edified by that. I'd love to pray as we come tonight to start. So let's pray. Jesus, we talk about freedom in Christ, freedom in you as we come to you, as we give our lives to you, as we walk with you, as we follow you. And Lord, it would be pretty terrible if that was just a theoretical exercise. A piece of Intellectual theology disconnected, disconnected from our lived experience. As we come tonight, yes, Lord, shape our minds with the truth of your word. But as you do, allow that truth embodied in your Holy Spirit to fill every part of our being and lead us forward into the lives of that you call us to live, shape us to become the people you invite us to be as we walk increasingly in the fullness and in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So come, Holy Spirit, and fill your people now. We offer you our minds. We offer you our hearts. We offer you our souls tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So, over the past number of weeks, with a few wee blips where we did Harvest and we had Stephen Rosie Kennedy, uh, which was really fun, wasn't it? It was good? I thought it was good. You're allowed to talk. It's okay. You know, we're, we're working. You're allowed to talk to me. It's okay. Um, over the past number of weeks, in the Freedom to Christ material, we, we've been journeying through these concepts. I just want to recap them very briefly. The first one was was who you are in Christ, that, that when you are forgiven, by definition, that means you are no longer sinful. You are holy. You become, according to the Bible and God's word, a saint. It's not a language we use terribly often, but a holy one of God. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It doesn't mean you don't mess up. It doesn't mean you don't do things that dishonor God and break his heart, but, but something has shifted in the core of who you are you are no longer a sinner at your being. You have transitioned and become a holy one of God, a child of God, a saint who still sins and still needs to come back to the cross to receive forgiveness. But your identity has shifted and changed. And if you're here for the first time tonight and you're thinking, what? Go back and grab the podcasts because we're having got time to go back over it all. Go back and grab the podcast and, and track that and check that out. And then we looked at the importance of not just acknowledging that, but having to actively choose to believe that. Choosing to believe that we are chosen by God, loved by God, forgiven by God and His His treasured possession. That is the reality of who we are, and I every day choose to believe that reality. And then we went on to look at um, the enemies to that truth. We talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil and how they war against our minds, our hearts, our souls to tell us a different truth about ourselves and a different truth about how we live. We looked at the role emotions play in that. We looked at the importance of forgiveness, not just being forgiven, but allowing the forgiveness we have experienced in Jesus to flow through us and impact the relationships around us. If we are forgiven people, we must be people who forgive. And then some of you, not all of you, but some of you came on the Saturday ministry day that we had here in church that was entitled Steps to Freedom, which was just this really wonderful, powerful space where you had time alone with God to, um, yeah, I, I guess just to reflect and to think into some of the things and ask His Holy Spirit to show you some of the things that have been broken in your life historically or presently, some of the, the times that you have rebelled, some of the times you've messed up, and, and bringing those to the cross and saying these things no longer define who I am, but I am who you say I am, God. And, and tonight we want to press deeper into that because tonight we're, we're, we're jumping through the lens of what Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12 that Andrew read for us earlier, um, about the power of a transformed mind is is the, I guess, what this teaching, this sermon is entitled, The Power of a Transformed Mind. Where is it? Chapter 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve and know what God's good and perfect and pleasing will is. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let me ask you a question. Does anybody belong to a gym? Hands up. Be honest. Confess. Yep. Has anybody historically belonged to a gym where you sign up, you pay that membership thing that comes out of your bank each month? Have you in the past 10 years paid for gym membership? Be honest, confess, come on, okay? Does that mean you go to the gym? Now, if I was to ask you, I was going to, embarrass one person tonight who I know this applies to, but that's not fair. I thought it was better to embarrass all of you. Um, There's a difference, isn't there, in, in being a member of a gym and paying the membership for the gym and belonging to the gym and actually going to the gym and training and having a personal trainer and going to classes and getting in shape and sweating and getting toned and all those things. There's a difference there, isn't there? It's one thing to belong to something, but it's another thing to step into what that belonging entitles you to become. Let me say that again. It's one thing to belong to something, but it's another thing to step into what that belonging entitles you to become. We use a couple of different words around church when we think about um, our Christian faith. One is justification, and one is sanctification. Think of it this way justification is the gym membership. You belong to the gym, the price has been paid. Sanctification is the, the going to the gym and your body becoming fit and toned and healthy and your waist size going down and your bicep size going up and all that carry on. Justification is what Jesus has done on the cross 2,000 years ago when he died. And by his blood, by his death, and by his resurrection, he has paid the price for your salvation, for your forgiveness, for your restoration, for your transformation. And when you become a Christian, when you give your life to him, the the reality of what he achieved on the cross becomes yours. You are forgiven. You are a child of God. You're a holy one of God. And that is true from the moment you welcome him into your life for eternity. Because not even death can separate you from him. That is true. That is true. Sanctification is the process of individually and corporately coming to Jesus and moving with Jesus and learning about Jesus and laying down the rebellious acts and stepping into the fullness of life that he offers to you. Is that a helpful illustration with the gym? Maybe. And if you're here tonight and you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, tonight's sermon is about going to the gym. It's about sanctification. It's about having a renewed mind and thinking differently and stepping into the fullness of the life that Jesus has for you. It's yours. It's all there for you. But we step into it. We step into it. And one of the the main battlefields on that journey of becoming who God says we are is the battlefield for our minds. One of the things that the, the enemy loves to do is to um, manipulate the truth. To take something that is true and then to twist it slightly and manipulate it. And sometimes he does it for you as an individual or me as an individual. Sometimes he does it through culture and through the the cultural narrative that we see playing out in society. One of the most topical ones, and I, I get this is controversial, but it's controversial because it's real. One of the the ways he's doing that is in the whole conversation around the transgender conversation at the minute. Gender dysphoria has to be one of the most painful ways to live. Waking up every morning and feeling like you don't belong in the body that, that, that you see in the mirror in front of you, it has to be one of the most painful realities where the feelings you have on the inside don't match the physicality that you have on the outside it has to be so so painful the bible teaches that that god made us and he made us intentionally and he made us purposefully and the physical body that you're born into is the body that god has created you to live in that physicality determines gender that's what the bible teaches And this isn't a sermon about about transgender tonight. And if you want to talk more about this, we can. But but, but that's what the Bible teaches. But what we've seen in the past number of years in in society is that that truth has changed. And that physicality no longer determines gender, but, but feelings determine gender. What's going on in the inside determines gender. And rather than believing that that this is who I am and the brokenness is in the inside, culture is now saying that how you feel in the inside, that's who you are, and you change your body to adjust to that and to fit to that. And it's one of the ways that the enemy is taking a good truth and twisting it and shaping it. Here's another one. In the area of refugees, refugees. You can't not have noticed that um, Belfast is becoming multicultural. There are people from other parts of the world now making Belfast their home. They're, They're coming to move here, either for economic reasons or for safety reasons, for all kinds of reasons. Some come illegally claiming asylum. Some come legally. But what we have is a growing Muslim population in Belfast. The Bible's really clear. It tells us to welcome the stranger, to welcome the, the old languages, the alien amongst us. Those who uh, live in foreign countries who need refuge, we should welcome them amongst us. The Bible's really clear on that. And what the enemy does is, as, as, as they come in amongst us, as we lean in, as we learn, as we get to know, as we love he says, well, they, they believe something different than what, what, what you believe as Christians, but, but maybe that's okay. Maybe, maybe they're just worshiping a different expression of the same God. Maybe, maybe all religions lead to the one true God. Maybe pluralistic pluralism's okay. And so what you have in society at the minute is, is driven by this idea of tolerance and individuality, this idea that whatever you believe is okay, because that's your truth. And if you believe in a different kind of God, that's fine. That's okay. That's your truth. That's okay. See, he takes something that is really good and then he he twists and manipulates. Let me give you another one. Um, one of the good gifts that we're given uh, as humans is is sex. And right at the start of the Bible, we see God giving this gift between man and woman, in. The context of a committed married relationship, the gift of intimacy and the gift of sexuality as man and woman come together, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And the context for it is a committed married relationship, a lifelong committed married relationship. But pull the thread on that and see how the enemy has twisted that good truth and said, well, why should that just be for inside marriage? Why can't you sleep with whoever you want to sleep with? It's your body, and if it's consensual, it's not hurting anybody, surely that's okay. And then pull the thread a little bit further, and, say, and it says, well, you know, this, this gift that God gives us a sex, which is originally other-focused, it's not about your own personal satisfaction, it is about loving your husband, loving your wife, The enemy twists it slightly and says, no, it's it's actually about you being fulfilled. So you have sex with whoever you want to have sex. In fact, don't even worry about another person. Just indulge in pornography. And and now the amount of money going into industries and websites like Pornhub is bigger than Netflix and everything else put together. Because he's twisted this good gift that God has given us that is other-focused and said, this is just simply about your own personal fulfillment. Do you see? How the enemy takes things that are good and true and just ever so slightly twists and taints. And as Christians we have these renewed hearts. We have renewed souls, regenerated, justified, forgiven. But the cultural narrative of our day, the whispers of the enemy that normalize alternative truths, continues to rage against our minds, and I guarantee you some of you are sitting really uncomfortable tonight because of some of the things I've said, and you're thinking, surely that feels old-fashioned. Is that really true? Is that not what we used to think? And the question becomes, whose truth do you believe? Do you you believe the world's version of truth? Do you believe your own felt, personal version of truth? Or do you choose to, true, to believe the truth that is revealed in the story of God and the story of His people in His Word? Because Paul writes... In Romans chapter 12: Brothers and sisters He's talking to family. he's not talking to strangers, he's talking to the children of God, he's talking to you, he's talking to me, he's talking to people who have been justified and loved and forgiven and who are part of God's family, brothers and sisters." He says, "Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because God is good, as we have been singing, because God is perfect, because God is love, and he wants to invite you into that life of of goodness and mercy and love and flourishing. He says, offer your bodies, offer your minds to him. Whose version of truth do you choose to believe? The world's version, your own version, or the version of truth that the God who is good, who is perfect, who gave himself on the cross for you, for your forgiveness and for your flourishing and for your eternity, invites you to step into. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, Paul writes, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change the way you're thinking. Change the way you're thinking so you can change the way you're living. But it's not that easy, is it? If it was that easy, it'd just be a case of read the Bible, do it, it'd be fine. It wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't worry about temptation. We wouldn't worry about false belief. It, it, but we struggle, don't we? I struggle. Do you struggle? Do you ever get to the end of the day and feel guilty? Feel shameful? Feel, how, how did I... Drop the ball. I'm not, how did I miss that? How did I keep doing that? It sounded quite funny, in the, didn't it? See, our second Bible reading tonight, and I talked a little bit about this last time I spoke, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 from verse 3, it talks about strongholds that become established in our minds. Freedom in Christ, the guys there, define strongholds as a belief or habitual pattern of thinking that is not consistent with what God tells us is true. So it's not just a one-off idea, but it's something that has become ingrained in us, in our thinking. That's actually really hard for us to break. It's like muscle memory. Let me give you a couple of examples. One silly and one more serious. Actually, they're both serious, but one just feels sillier. See, I know that now I'm over 40, my metabolism has slowed down. Some of you are saying, well, you get to 50. (laughs) But I I know now you guys in your 20s, you eat kebabs at 10 o'clock at night. Just enjoy it while it lasts. I promise you it'll not last forever. Um, Now that I'm over 40, I know my metabolism slows down. So I know if I eat junk food after 9, 10 o'clock at night, it it just wrecks me. So it does. I'm It's not fun at all. So it's not, and yet, there's something about me after a day's work and an evening's work comes into the house. And I could blame Lara for this because sometimes she texts me and says, Here, bring something nice home. <laughs> but it's not just her, folks. I do it as well. I'll arrive home with something, even though I know I wake up in the morning where I'm going to be healthy today, and all day I'm really healthy. And, and then at nine o'clock at night, I'm like, Oh, bag of crisps. And it's not the wee but it's it's the big bag. You know what I mean? And if Lara wants some too, it's two big bags, you can't share those. Am I on my own in this? And it's not just one night. We could do this for four or five nights in a row, then we catch ourselves on for a couple of nights. Because there's something ingrained in my head, in my in my thinking that, that eating that big bag of crisps will bring comfort and relaxation. It doesn't actually. But there's something, there's a stronghold in my mind that associates that idea of overeating and overeating junk food with comfort and release and joy. And it's temporal, isn't it? Let me give you another story. This one's probably more significant. I grew up in a home with a, with a dad who was a really big figure and a grandfather who was a really significant figure. They were both really well thought of in our community. My grandfather was a farmer and all the, the other local farmers used to come and gather at his house and he was just a real rock in, in the center of the community. My, my, my dad, um, different environments, but same sort of thing. People looked to him for help and looked to him for advice and wisdom. And I, I grew up in a home in the shadow of these two, just giants of men. And it was brilliant, don't get me wrong. I, I was really loved. I was really blessed. It was a good childhood. But, but something in me felt like I was competing for their attention at times. And something in me was always seeking their approval. And as a kid, my my dad's approval of me was really, really important. My grandfather's approval of me was really, really important. And over time, that began to form a pattern of thinking. And when I came into church leadership, I, I, I discovered that, in myself, and i have been really honest here, I discovered in myself that I wasn't simply doing things for, for the Lord. That sounds terrible. I was looking for approval from some older men in a room. So if I was in a room with other leaders, I'd be looking to them for approval. Or if I was in a room with a group of elders, I'd be looking to one or two of the older men for approval for my ideas or my thoughts. And I realized that this isn't healthy. This isn't a good way to live. There's something broken in me that that God's approval isn't enough for these things. So actually, when I came to Orangefield, I I reached out for some help. And I hope you don't mind me embarrassed. I I reached out to Brian. Brian is a a counseling and a a prayer ministry charity uh, business. And I reached out to him and one of his colleagues. I I met with them for six or eight sessions. And they they, they prayed with me. They, They counseled me and helped me work through some of that stuff helped me break down some of those unhealthy thought patterns. It wasn't my dad's fault or my granddad's fault. It was my fault. And just a a beautiful truth that the enemy slightly twisted and manipulated. But through speaking to somebody and through prayer ministry, I was able to address that. And I find it easier now, not perfect, but easier now to live before an audience of one and not have to look for the approval of other people in the same way. Does that make sense, what I'm talking about? Are you with me? Are you tracking tonight? You're not giving much away. Poker faces. Um, Hopefully that makes sense. I think the Apostle Paul gets this. So he does. I think the Apostle Paul understands what it is to have a transformed life, but a mind that that just struggles to do the right things and think the right things at times. Listen to this here. He says in in Romans chapter 7, I do not understand what I do. Eat crisps at night, looking for the approval of others. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the, the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, who does it, but it is sin living in me. For I know the good itself, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, and that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And he goes on and on and on. You've heard the passage before. And if the Apostle Paul, who is this giant of a Christian, who is a giant of an evangelist, a giant of a church planter, a guy who God trusted to write a significant part of the New Testament, struggles with his patterns of thinking that lead to behaviors that that don't always work themselves out. Well, I think to myself I'm in good company. I need the same grace that he's looking for. I need the same help that he's looking for. How do these strongholds develop? How do these unhelpful patterns of thinking, these, these one-off ideas become almost entrenched ways of thinking? These, these one-off thoughts that we see other people believing and doing become strongholds and habits in our lives that we struggle to break? Well, I'm, I'm drawn on the Freedom to Christ material in this, and they suggest three things. Um, those guys are theologians and they're psychologists, so I'm trusting what they say. It resonates as true. They say there's three main ways this can happen. One is our environment. One is traumatic experience, and one is um, giving into temptation over and over again. In our environment, they tell a story, and I, I find it really helpful to think about and really quite sad to think about as well. They tell a story about three boys that grow up in a home with a father who is an alcoholic, who's when he's drinking, he becomes violent and abusive. And in that home, when when the father comes home and he's been drinking, the three boys have, have different responses to the father's behavior. The oldest boy, he stands up to him he squares up to him. You're not going to hit me again. You're not going to push me again. And they, they, they tussle. The, the, the middle boy, he tries to accommodate the father. The dad comes in and he's, he's drunk, he's angry, he's violent. And he says, can I get you a cup of tea, dad? Let, let, let me get you your slippers. Let me, let, let, let me get the TV for you. Let, let, let me protect none for you. He tries to accommodate him, to pacify him. And the third son, the third brother, when the dad comes home, he's terrified. and He, he runs and hides under his bed in his bedroom. And this pattern of behavior shapes these kids' childhood. And they grow up and they become men and they get married, they get jobs, they they move out of their homes, the home. They have a whole new way of life. But when conflict arises, the older son squares up to it. What are you talking about? Who are you to think that? Don't you look at me like that? Don't you say that to me? And the middle... Brother, the middle son accommodates and pacifies and tries to reconcile and Well, listen, what if you did this and I did this and let, let, let me get this for you and this, this will be okay. Let me, let me, let me help. It'll be, we'll make it work. And the youngest one just, just runs away and hides. Can't deal with conflict at all. Can't. Did you see? See that? How our environments can shape us as adults. Do you see that? Another way is traumatic experiences maybe it's abuse in childhood maybe it's something violent like a rape maybe it's something really traumatic like a miscarriage or the loss of a child maybe and it's not so much it's not so much the event that causes the the unhelpful pattern of thinking it's the lie that comes out of the event So many people that that, that I spend time with as pastor who have experienced abuse and sexual abuse in their childhood in some way grow up believing a lie that they are dirty and they are worthless. This traumatic thing that happened to them that wasn't their fault births a lie into them that impacts relationships right throughout their adult life. And the event is traumatic, but it's the lie that comes out of it that they start to believe that becomes a rut that they get stuck in in their thinking. The other is, the third one, the, the giving in to temptation again and again and again. Um, oh, I could talk about, well, talk about overeating. We've already shared about that. I could talk about pornography, which is a massive, massive thing in today's culture. Far bigger than any of us are willing to even admit impacting more of us even in the church than we're willing to admit. And this idea of, of sexual temptation and the desire for, for comfort in terms of stress, it's a release that leads you into a place where you think it's going to lead, lead you to comfort. It actually leads you to guilt and shame. And this perpetual circle of brokenness Our spending can be another one where you find yourself getting stressed and you go and buy something on Amazon. I wonder how many of us can trace our Amazon accounts to times of profound stress and busyness in our lives. Be interesting, wouldn't it? To see. But we do it enough times, it starts to become an ingrained pattern of behavior. Our sarcasm. Do you know anybody, or maybe it's you? You find yourself lashing out at other people. Whenever you're stressed, whenever you're tired, whenever you're vulnerable, you use sarcasm to deflect attention off yourself and you put somebody else down to make yourself feel better. And everyone laughs and you think it's funny, but for the person, on the other end, it's it's horrible. And actually for you, it's just digging you deeper into this unhelpful pattern of thinking. Are these thought patterns leading you to become more like Jesus, or are these thought patterns leading you to become less like Jesus? You think they're true. You think they're helpful, but stand back from them for a second. Are these thought patterns leading you to become more like Jesus, or are these thought patterns leading you to become less like Jesus? I want to take a second. I want to give you space to identify in yourself. I'm not going to ask you to speak this out loud, but are you aware in yourself of unhelpful thought patterns that shape your reality? Ideas about yourself that are not consistent with what the Bible says? Are behaviors that you do that have been birthed out of a lie that you believe that has become so ingrained within you? I want to take a moment just to, we're, not, we're almost finished, we're not quite finished, but I want to take a moment to pray. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit just to bring to your mind some of those, or even just one of those unhelpful thought patterns, lies of the enemy. And I don't want you to reach for it. I just want you to pay attention to the first thing that comes into your mind when I pray. Holy Spirit, Come. And the prayer of David, the prayer in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Holy Spirit, bring to our minds lies that the enemy has caused to become normal to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it would be, let's try and drink and not make the funny noise again. There we go, it worked. I, I wanna give you, as we land this tonight and then come to the table to celebrate communion, I wanna give you some practical things, some practices that, that I think will help because let's be honest, you know, most of you have been following Jesus for a while. Some of you have been following Jesus for a really long time. If it was as simple as saying, just stop doing that, you'd have done it by now, wouldn't you? If it was as simple as saying, just stop thinking that way, you'd have fixed it by now. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because our minds are a battlefield, so they are. So I want to just give you really quickly six things, this will take five minutes to do, um, that I think are helpful. Here's the first one. Seep yourself in the story of Scripture. We're so good at consuming things from other people, whether it's Netflix or social media or the newspaper we read or or whatever it is. We're so good at consuming information from all kinds of other places. Seep yourself in the story of Scripture. If you're serious about following Jesus, a five minute devotion every day is not enough. Seep yourself in the Bible, in the story of Scripture. That's the first thing. I don't mean that to be guilt inducing. It's just an invitation. It's just something I think is true. Seep yourselves in the story of Scripture. Read the Bible. If you need help with that, we have loads of groups around church that are completely designed to help you read the Bible. If you need help with that, we can give you free Bible reading notes to help you with that. But seep yourselves in the story of Scripture. Secondly, repent. It sounds really simple, but, but it, it's, it's where you start. You're behaving a certain way. You're thinking a certain thing. And God speaks to you primarily through his word and says, this is not life-giving. This is not what I have for you. So you turn from this to Jesus. Jesus, I'm sorry. Repent. Repent. Third, well, I say repent. There's all kinds of ways. You can simply pray a prayer and repent. You can come for prayer ministry and have people pray with you in this. That's really powerful as well. The steps to freedom thing that we ran was really powerful for people in in, in this kind of area. And we'll do that again in the future. But repent, turn. Third thing, take every thought captive. I'm not gonna say her name, but she'll smile when I tell the story. A friend of mine was on holidays recently and they were coming into land in Belfast after a week away and it was really stormy. And and the airplane came in, there was other airplanes circling around the airport and the airplane came into land. This would terrify me. I would be crying under my seat if this happened. Airplane came into land and it's windy. It's like, like this here. And it came in and it came in and it came in. And at the last minute the pilot thought, that's not safe, and took off again five times, five times before the pilot finally landed the plane safely. My goodness, what a relief because the first four attempted landings weren't safe to do. They weren't good to do. Your mind is just crazy with thoughts, and influences and ideas coming in. Not every one of them are true. So when you think something, you find a thought coming into your mind, and you think, that's not good. You don't need to land it. You can say, God, that's not. I, I don't want to think this, and give it back to him. Put it away. Take every thought captive. Take every thought captive. Be aware of your thoughts, and, and if you be aware of one that is dangerous or not true, say, God, this isn't true, and name that before you. Take it out of my mind. Take every thought captive. Fourth thing, accountability. Like this is this is a bit cringeworthy, but it's it, it's brilliant in terms of being effective. James, Jesus' brother, says in his book, you know, confess your sins before men or women as well. Find somebody you trust. Has to be somebody you trust. Don't go to a gossip, that's a terrible idea. Find somebody you trust and say to them, listen can I share something with you? I'm really struggling with this. I need you to pray for me and see in a week's time, I need you to text me or phone me and say, how are you getting on with that? And I don't need you to judge me. I don't need you to feel awkward about it. I just need you to, to, to love me and pray for me and ask me that in a way that's going to help me to, to break this pattern of thinking and live differently. Accountability is so powerful, so powerful. Fifth thing, and this one's straight out of the freedom of Christ bit. It's, called, it's really cheesy, so I apologize. It's American. Stronghold busting. Okay, I sounds like Ghostbusters, isn't it? Stronghold busting. Can put it up in the screen? You guys can see that, yeah? And, and, and this is a little practice. Um, depending on who you talk to, they'll say different ideas about how long it takes to form a habit. The freedom of Christ, guys, say it takes 40 days to form a habit. Um, there's another school of research by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. He says it takes 21 days. Um, Psychology Today magazine says it takes 66 days. It takes a lot of days to form a habit. I think everybody's different. They do it at different speeds and depend on what it is. But, but, but I say that for you because there's a practice that the Freedom in Christ guys offer that I think is really quite helpful. It involves taking a piece of paper. You can make notes here or take a photo of the screen if you want to take this away and do this later. It starts off with saying, okay, what lie have you been believing? Some of you have already identified that during our sermon tonight. What lie have you been believing? And you write it down on a piece of paper. It's not for anybody else, it's for yourself. And then secondly, what effect has that lie been having on your life? Maybe the lie is, I'm really dirty coming from that thing that happened years ago. I'm I'm really dirty. And the effect that's having, it's it's impacting your self-esteem, it's impacting your mental health, it's impacting your relationships, all kinds of things. Maybe it's something different. What effect is that lie having on your life? Josh, bounce to the next screen, will you? Then, and and Google's great for this. If you were doing this pre-Google, it would be a nightmare. Find as many Bible verses that speak into that area What does God's word say about that area? Well, if you're a Christian, it's simply not true that you are dirty. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus has taken your dirty rags and he's given you a white robe. You are completely forgiven. You are beautiful. You are his treasured possession. So you write these things down, these are truths. And then you write a declaration. Jesus, I reject the lie that I am. You fill it in. And I embrace the truth that whatever flows out of the scripture passage. You, you write this down. One sentence, I reject the lie that. One sentence, I embrace the truth that. And then every morning or every night, depending what way you're wired, you take that piece of paper out of your Bible or you open it up on your phone and you read through that. Let take a couple of minutes. I embrace, I reject the lie that I embrace the truth. You speak it out loud, you pray it out loud, and you do it consistently. I'm going to say for a couple of months, 66 days, and watch the power of God's word shaping your mind and shaping your life. Finally, sixth one spiritual rhythms. We touch on this when we say read the Bible, but spiritual rhythms, whether that is praying or prayer walking, whether that is Bible study, whether that is coming to church, whether that is fasting, whether that is silence and solitude, whether that's coming to the prayer meeting. We, we all have spiritual rhythms and spiritual practices that we build into our life. The danger is that we think those spiritual practices are the ends in themselves. I'm reading the Bible to read the Bible? No, that's not right. I'm reading the Bible to learn something. Maybe. I'm reading the Bible to to figure out how to sort out my morality, to get something out of the Bible that I can do to make me a better person. Is that true? Maybe a little bit. The primary reason you read the Bible, the primary reason you come to church, the primary reason that in a moment we're gonna gather around this table and celebrate communion, it's not the practice in itself. The practice is a portal to the person of Jesus. When you engage in spiritual rhythms, whether it's coming to this communion table or having your quiet time in the morning or fasting or, or coming to the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, whatever it is, The practice is a portal to the person of Jesus. It's an invitation to meet with the living God. It's setting aside space to meet with the living God. And as we come to this table now, this is a spiritual rhythm that he invites us to do. Yeah, it's about coming forward and taking bread and wine. Yes, it's about remembering everything he has done. But first and foremost, It's meeting with Jesus and allowing him to feed your soul and to reshape your mind and tell you that you are loved and that you are forgiven and that you are his and that nothing else in all of creation, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, neither angels nor demons, not even the powers of hell itself, can separate you. From the love of God that is shown in Jesus Christ, that is acted out at this table.